All right, so this morning we're actually beginning a new series in the book of Jonah. And so if you are visiting with us for the very first time, this is a great morning for you to be with us because we're starting a new series. So you can kind of like join with us right now at the very uh, ground level of a new kind of journey into this book, the book of Jonah. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Jonah? I'll give you about five minutes to find it. So some of you might not know this. It took me a while before I figured this out. There's actually a table of contents in your Bibles. And so, you know, some of you, you think you don't look spiritual uh, if you have to look at the table of contents to find a book of the Bible, but no judgment here. Uh, I have it marked in my Bible. That's how I was able to find it so quickly. But in my Bible, it's on page 774. I don't know if it's helpful for you. It's probably not. Jonah chapter 1. And let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love and power that you have. Thank you that you have exercised your power in great love on our behalf through the death and resurrection of your son Jesus to defeat the powers of sin and death and darkness and to rescue us. And we pray that as we begin this new series in the book of Jonah, that you might open up our hearts and our minds and our lives to the ways in which you want to speak to us and change us through this series. And so we pray that your spirit would come and be present among us and do work in our lives and hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so... Jonah, of course, is one of the most well-known and one of the most well-loved books in all of the Bible. And even if you're not that familiar with Christianity or the Bible, you're probably familiar with the book of Jonah. You're probably familiar with this story. And uh, of course, we always associate Jonah with another character. It's Jonah and the whale. And the whale's name, of course, is Monstro. And Jonah is fleeing Geppetto because he just wants to be a little boy. But we get a little bit fuzzy about this story. It's one of those stories that's so familiar to us that we can think that we understand it when we really don't understand it, not really. Jonah is unique among all of the prophets in the Old Testament. And so there's a variety of different uh, prophets that make up what's uh, called the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. And all of the prophets come with words of promise and hope and exhortation. They're usually addressing very specific situations in the life of Israel. And the prophet is given a word and he speaks that word to the people. But Jonah is unique because he is the only one among all the prophets that's not in sort of the genre of prophetic, rather he comes to us as a narrative. It's a story. There's an author that I love, one of my favorite authors is Flannery O'Connor, and she's got this great collection of essays called Mystery and Manners. And in this collection of essays, uh, she writes kind of about uh, the, the importance of narrative, the importance of stories for shaping and forming us. And she says this, She says, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. And it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. And the story of Jonah is a way of God saying something to us that can't be said in any other way. And it takes the entire story, every word of it, to tell us what the meaning is, the significance of of the story for our own lives. 
Now, the story of Jonah is also a very playful story. It's full of humor and comedic elements. Uh, there's irony and satire, and it's just great. It's, it's great fun, and, 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 and it's one of the reasons why kids love this story. And growing up, my children watched uh, Veggie Tales. And some of you will know what these are. If you don't, it's uh, Bible stories that are told through uh, these vegetables. They're really pretty good, actually, but most of the stories have to be kind of adjusted to be accessible to kids. They have to kind of change a little bit of the biblical story in some little ways uh, to make it engaging and accessible for children. But, you know, when you watch the VeggieTales episode on Jonah, almost nothing changes. And it's because the story itself is so engaging and interesting and, and humorous. And it's full of these comedic elements. And so in chapter one, a great fish swallows Jonah. And then in chapter two, he vomits him out on the land. And then in chapter three, Jonah goes into Nineveh and he preaches. And the city's response is so dramatic that even the animals, the text say, fast and put on sackcloth. And so we're asked to imagine, you know, cows putting on sackcloth and mourning over their sins. And then in chapter four, God causes this plant to grow up and to provide shade for Jonah, and he's very happy. And then he sends this worm to destroy the plant so that it dies, and then he sends a scorching wind and sun to beat down on Jonah's head. And I just think that's funny. I mean, it's funny, it's, it's, it's funny stuff, but although this story is playful and it's funny, it's not frivolous. And Jonah actually, in this story, takes aim at the toxic effect that religion, that, 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 that church attendance, that being a morally upright person can actually have on a person's life. And specifically, Jonah actually is talking to us about God's missionary heart for this world. And he's exposing the reluctance oftentimes of God's people to be participants in his mission in this world. And so as we engage in this story over the next several weeks, we're going to find that this story exposes us, it challenges us, and it will change us if we let it. And this morning we're going to be looking together at uh, chapter one, and there is great psychological insight in this chapter. I think the whole book actually contains great psychological insight. You know, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and you know, uh, Tolkien famously uh, really didn't like C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis would read portions of it to them at this little pub in England called the, uh, uh, the Eagle and Child. And uh, Tolkien just thought the whole thing didn't really hang together and make sense. And, and of course, as a piece of writing, I mean, Tolkien's Narnia is just magisterial. I mean, it, it just far surpasses uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia. And yet, what I find so engaging about the Chronicles of Narnia is the powerful psychological insight that I find in the characters. I feel like when you read these characters, like, Lewis knows me. And, and I feel that way when I read the book of Jonah. You kind of feel like the author of the story knows me. And he frames the character of Jonah in such a way that is insightful and it speaks beyond Jonah's own story to our stories. And, and how we ourselves might find ourselves kind of resisting and reluctant to engage in God's mission in this world. 
And so my, my hope, my prayer is that as we engage in this story, as we engage especially in this first chapter, that you will find yourself in this story. And so we're going to look at it uh, underneath three headings. You could say that this chapter unfolds as a drama in three acts. And so we're going to look at three features of the narrative. First, we're going to see uh, the unpalatable command. Second, we're going to see uh, the downward spiral. And thirdly, we'll look at the misunderstood storm. And in the unpalatable command, I think we'll see something about our own resistance to mission. In the downward spiral, I think we'll see something about the world in which God has called us into mission. And in the uh, misunderstood storm, we learn something about the God of mission. And so let's look first at the unpalatable command. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. So in verse 1, Jonah is identified uh, with a prophet by the same name, Jonah, son of Amittai, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And what's significant about uh, this reference is he is connecting Jonah as a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. So brief uh, history lesson. Uh, Israel, at some point in its history, was divided into a northern and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Israel was led, by and large, by a succession of pretty evil kings that ultimately led to their demise, their disintegration as a nation. But the primary threat during the life of this nation was Assyria to the north. And so Assyria was this very violent global power. It was actually the largest uh, global force in the world at the time. And the prophet Nahum describes the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, as, quote, a city of crime, utterly treacherous, full of violence, and where killing never stops. And many people have compared the Assyrian Empire and specifically the capital of the empire, Nineveh, to the Nazis of the ancient world. They were a very violent, a very brutal global force. And they were legendary for their fetishized uh, brutality, which expressed itself in the very worst of a darkened imagination. And, and they constructed lavish towers out of severed heads of their enemies. Uh, they would make a spectacle of screaming terror by publicly skinning people alive. Uh, they would bury people up to their necks and allow their bodies to decompose in their own filth where, while they still lived. And it was this brutal, violent empire that stood on the very doorsteps of the nation Israel and threatened their existence. And so it is to this capital, Nineveh, that Jonah now is called to go and to preach a message from Yahweh, the God of Israel. And notice Jonah's response, verse 2. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it, for its evil has come before me. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, let's talk for a minute about Tarshish. So, um, 
this is a, a map of, of what for ancient Israel was kind of the known world. This is like the edges of civilization. And on one end is Nineveh, and on the other end, the far, far end is Tarshish. In fact, uh, Tarshish was the furthest known point in the world for an ancient Israelite. So Israel is right there, right above Joppa. And so Jonah gets this command, go to Nineveh, and what does he do? He goes in the opposite direction of Nineveh, as far from Nineveh as he could possibly go in the known world. Now, this is incredibly rare in the Old Testament. You know, many times in the Old Testament, God comes to a prophet and basically says, arise and go. And so God goes to Moses, and he comes to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And there are these commissioning stories where they're commissioned to arise and go and to carry a word from God to, to people. And, you know, sometimes the, the, the initial call is met with some resistance. Moses he says, I can't speak, I can't carry this message. You know, Isaiah says, oh, they're not going to hear me, they're hard-hearted. And God says, go. Jeremiah says, oh, I'm but a youth. And so in spite, though, of, of their initial resistance, every time and in every case, when a prophet is called to arise and go, they arise and they go. Every time, in every case, except for once, except for here, Jonah gets a word, arise, he goes, and he arises and he goes in the exact opposite direction. And so it should raise a question as to why. Now, we look in vain at chapter 1 as to the reason why. You know, he tells us all these details. You know, he goes down to Joppa, and then he goes down, and he pays his fare on the boat, and you get all these kind of insignificant details, and you're like, but why did he run? What's going on, Jonah? And, and different reasons have been proposed. Some have said, well, perhaps... Jonah was xenophobic. He was a racist, and he didn't want to go to Nineveh and be around all those dirty, you know, pagan, idolatrous Ninevites. But actually, instead of going to Nineveh with a bunch of pagan, idolatrous people, he goes to Joppa, and he gets on a boat with a bunch of pagans to go to Tarshish to hang out with a bunch of... He's not xenophobic. This is not his issue. And so someone says, well, maybe he was afraid. I mean, after all, Nineveh was their archenemy. And according to the ancient sources, they would skin their enemies alive, skin them alive. And aware of this, Jonah maybe said, I'm not going there. Those people are going to, they're going to kill me. What if I go preach them and I don't succeed? And they, what, what happens then? They're going to take me and they're going to kill me. But actually, the text doesn't give any indication that Jonah was afraid that he would be killed by these people. You have to go all the way to the end of the book to find out why Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh. And the reason, quite frankly, is shocking. It's odd. It's strange. And look what it says in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Jonah finally, after the whole kind of narrative of the book, we're going, why didn't you go? Why didn't you go? Why are you running? Why all this drama with the ship and the, the fish and the, you know, all this? And, and look at what it says. At this point, chapter 4, it follows on the heels of chapter 3. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down, 4 on the heels of 3. I was trying to be funny. Um, 
But in chapter three, the entire city, you know, as the story goes, repents. They all, you know, even the animals are covering themselves in sackcloth and ashes. Immediately, in the, in the, you know, after Jonah says, after 40 days, Nineveh's gonna be destroyed. And Jonah's like, oh man, they repented because now God's gonna relent from the disaster he was gonna bring on them. And he says this, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Apparently, this conversation has been going on with Jonah and God for quite some time now. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh? He wasn't afraid of failure. He was afraid of success. He was afraid, man, these people, if they hear me, they respond to this word, they're going to repent, and God is going to forgive them. And he just thought to himself, like, I don't want to be an instrument of God's grace towards my enemies. And so he runs from the mission of God. Now, I was kind of thinking about this this week, and I I was just thinking about how, you know, I I think, for for me, I mean, in some ways, I I can look at the story of Jonah. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I look at the story of Jonah, and I think, you know, wouldn't it be magnificent if you just kind of wandered down in downtown LA and everybody turned to God, you know, and then, you know, there was this great revival and awakening, And then you carried the message on through the rest of the United States and you kind of like marched through all the big cities and there was this great revival. And I I think I wouldn't be upset about that. I would be excited, wouldn't you? But I don't actually think we're pressing in deep enough to actually what's going on in Jonah's heart. Jonah's problem is he is fearful. He does not want to be an instrument of God's grace and mercy towards his enemies, towards the people who threaten him. And I do wonder if in our hearts we ever find ourselves resisting the call to be an instrument of God's compassion and grace and mercy to people that we might put in the category of enemy. You know, I I think, um, you know, for, for a lot of us, uh, we can relate well to uh, that character in um, uh, Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Uh, there's a, a character in there who's a doctor, and he describes him as this guy who's, he just loves, loves humanity, loves humanity. He's, you know, talking about how much he loves humanity, but he, he hates people. He just can't stand people. And I think in some sense, you know, I think a lot of us, we, we, we like the idea of a, of a God who has a big, gracious, compassionate heart towards bad, sinful people. But I wonder how we react when we're called in specific, particular instances to move out and be an agent and an instrument, a conduit of his love and his grace and forgiveness towards somebody who's hurt you. 
somebody who has exploited your emotional vulnerability and deeply wounded you. Or maybe somebody on the other side of the world who threatens our national securities. Or maybe immigrants who come in here and take jobs. Or, you know, the liberals, or the fundies, or the Trump voters, or the whatever your category is that you have a hard time, you, you tend to like kind of frame those people out there a particular way. How do you feel about moving towards those people with deep understanding and grace and compassion and actually being a conduit and an instrument of his love toward them? And I think now we start to resonate a little bit with what's happening in Jonah's heart and life. So Jonah receives this unpalatable command, and notice the unpalatable command moves to this, uh, his reaction to the unpalatable command moves to a downward spiral. And notice how the text describes it, and, and listen for this word, down. It says in verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they hurled their cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he lay down and was fast asleep. The author, who is very limited, you know, in these old, you know, manuscripts, they, they're very limited on, on the, the, the language they want to use and, and the words they choose, you know, to include and the ones they don't because it was a lot of work. And he chooses to repeat this word down four times. And for the Hebrew writer, this was to emphasize something. It was to catch our attention. And what is it to alert us to? It's to show us that Jonah's running from this call was an actual running from the presence of God, and it was taking him on a journey of descent away from the God who dwells on high. When you resist God's call on your life, his push on your life to be an instrument of his love, his grace, compassion, forgiveness towards people around you, you're not just resisting a command of God, you're actually turning away from the very presence of God. This is Jonah. He goes down to Joppa, down into the ship, and then down into the very heart of the ship, and then down into his bed, and he falls there into a deep sleep. Meanwhile, the author ironically contrasts Jonah's downward descent with these pagan sailors who, in the midst of a storm, suddenly look up, and they find God. And this is fascinating. So the the, the author is actually trying to accentuate kind of this ironic uh, contrast between the prophet of God, who's a part of the covenant people of God, who has the Bible, he's got the word of God, he's got God's laws. And no doubt back in, in, in the land of Israel, Jonah was a very obedient Israelite. I mean, he was a prophet. He probably was a pretty good, upright, upstanding guy. And yet the prophet of God is now moving down and he contrasts that with the pagans, I, sailors who actually start to look up. 
And notice how it plays out in the story. So this, this storm comes upon the sea in the Mediterranean, and the, the storm is so severe that the text says the ship threatened to break up. And I don't know if that takes you back to, you know, back in your days when a boyfriend or girlfriend threatened to break up with you. But uh, the, the ship is personified. The storm is so intense. He's like, you guys better do something about this storm or else I'm going to break up and all you sailors are going to drown. And, and they recognize this and they're freaking out. And they start throwing stuff into the sea to lighten their load from them. But they know that there's something unique, something inexplicable, something very odd, something very ominous about this storm. And they're sensing there's something more going on here. This is not a normal storm. There's something weird here. And they start wondering who is responsible for this thing. And they start all calling out to their gods. And then look at verse 6. The, the, the pagans wake up the prophet of God and call him to prayer. They say, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And then they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Whose fault is this? Who's responsible for this storm? And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? It's almost as if they had been through security check at an airport. They'd learned those questions. And notice Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And now, verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said, what are you thinking? What are you doing? The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because of what he had told them. And then they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Isn't it interesting? The pagan sailors are trying to save life while Jonah is trying to throw his life away. Verse 14, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. I was reading an old ancient Jewish commentator and they said that uh, first the sailors took Jonah and they stuck him into the sea up to his ankles and the sea went quiet. And then they pulled him out and then it went tempestuous again. And then they took Jonah and they stuck him down to his waist and then the sea went still again. And then they pulled him out and it went crazy, you know, storm again. And then finally they just threw him all the way in. <laughs> Do you notice the contrast though that's happening in this story? The prophet of God the, the guy in the story who's supposedly the good guy, he's got the Bible, he's got the truth, he's got the true confession about the God of Israel. He is the maker of heaven and earth. This guy is hard-hearted and running from God, whereas the pagans out there, the heathens, they are incredibly receptive to God, 
and they're trying to save his life. And at the end of the story, they've repented and they are offering sacrifices. They're making commitments. They're doing all of the proper ways to worship the God of Israel. And do you see what the author is doing? The narrator is messing with our categories, our neat little categories. You see, in our neat little categories, who is it, you know, how, how is the world supposed to work? Well, it's supposed to be that the Christians are the good ones who are generous and kind and who care about life and who tell the truth and are never hypocritical. And it's those unsaved heathen pagans who are the ones that are mean and nasty and backstabbing and critical. And of course, the Christians are the ones who listen with understanding and they speak truthfully and they're always fair when they're talking about people outside of their own group. And the unsaved heathens are mean and nasty. Is that how it works? It's not how it works in Jonah's world. <laughs> Things are being messed up here. Our boxes, our labeling systems, our categories are being mixed up. And he's saying, look, the world is not always as you think it is. Back in December, we had a, a dear friend of ours attend a worship service with us. Uh, during Advent, it was her first time that she'd ever been in church. And it, it was fantastic because after the service, she was like, oh, that was such a great, inspiring talk. I, I really, I want to go talk about it. Can we, we got to sit down for lunch and we got to process through this. And, and so I, we sit down with her and, and she starts talking about areas in her life that she, she's like, I, I really think I need to treat, you know, my, uh, the maid that comes in and does service in our house better, and I wonder if there's a way where I can do more empowerment for her, and she's, she's, she's processing through all this stuff, and she's, she's feeling like I've got to act on what I've just heard, and I just said, look, I said, relax, you need to come to church a little more often, we don't do that. <laughs> we just go to church, and we hear a message, and we go out, and we just kind of do what we've always done. But sometimes you find, especially when you yourself recognize your own bad place, that because of your resistance toward the work of compassion and justice and love and bearing witness to the good news about Jesus among people that you don't like, you can actually find yourself looking and you encounter people and you're like... Some of these people seem more sensitive to God and more nice and more compassionate than my, the, the people at church. I don't know if you ever found this. This is what Jonah is discovering on a boat. And it's interesting, you know, when, when you neatly segregate yourself off from people out there, when you never get on a ship in the midst of a storm with people who are different from you, 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 you may not ever come to understand them when you neatly allow them to separate out there as a stereotype and as a straw man that you describe, that you criticize, you know, uh, and that you listen to all of your stuff, whether it be on Fox News or on the New York Times editorial page or whatever your thing is that sort of reinforces the narrative you tell about them out there, you will never understand people. Understanding comes when we get in a boat with people and we experience some when we have some shared experiences with them that are very difficult. And oftentimes what you discover is God is at work out there. He's oftentimes at work in people's lives and you start to realize Jesus wasn't kidding when he said the harvest is plentiful. 
because I see God at work all over the place. I see, I can sense a hunger here, a longing, a thirst, and a sensitivity. So this is what Jonah discovered about the world. This is what we need to discover about the world in which we are called to go on mission. And so we see uh, something about the impalatable command. We see something about his downward spiral. But the last thing I just want to draw to your attention, and more briefly here, is let's just talk a bit about this misunderstood storm. So notice what it says back in verse four. This is kind of a terrifying verse. It says, the Lord hurled a great wind upon a sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. And then in verse 17 of uh, chapter one, it says, and then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And the text is making very clear that God is sending this storm and that God is sending this fish. And you know, the, the, the way, though, that Jonah and the sailors interpret the storm is they interpret it as that God is ticked off, like he's angry, and he needs to be pacified. You know, this, this storm has come, and the sailors are like, the gods must be angry. Quick, someone do something to, like, satiate, to satisfy their anger so that he stops. You know, this was like what the pagans did back in the day, right? Like the... the, the Volcano is erupting, and the gods are angry, so you've got to go take, you know, someone and throw them in the volcano, and then it'll appease the anger of the gods. And they're like, the storm is raging. Someone quick, you know, do something to appease their anger. And then, of course, Jonah, who's from Israel, he's got the same mentality. He thinks that the, he's like, I know why the storm has come. God is after me. Just kill me, and God will be satisfied. But both the pagans and Jonah are operating with the same assumption. And the assumption is, is that God is out to get them because he's angry and he's ticked off and he's going to destroy them. But one author put it like this. He said, he said, the imagery of being thrown into a raging ocean which rages for you and you alone and sinking down to a cold, dark, wet, airless death away from all human pity, drowning in your own fault, only then to encounter the gaping mouth of some unknowable monster with vacant eyes approaching from the black salt oblivion. This is a meditation that falls beneath nihilistic terror. It would be easy to interpret all that as God was really getting Jonah. But as the story unfolds, what you see is that the storm and the fish were not instruments of God's anger to destroy Jonah. They were actually an instrument of his love to save Jonah. The effect of the storm is that the, the sailors actually turn to God and they experience a new relationship with him. They, they discerned in this that the true and living God was reaching out to them and saying, look, I want a conversation with you. You guys can enter into a relationship with me. Call out to me. And then the storm comes on Jonah and Jonah looks up in the whale and he discovers God is there with him, rescuing him, taking him all along to the place where he wants him to be. And so these are instruments of God's grace and love. Now, someone says, if the storm and that terrifying monster were an instruments of God's grace, 
I don't, you know, just, God, maybe just give me a little less grace, okay? And of course, sometimes God works in our life in gentle ways. With loving parents who, who raised us up to know and love and follow God, and, and you kind of have a charmed life. It's an easy life. It seems to go well, but you're walking with God. Sometimes God brings a friend into our life to kind of talk to us and over a, a, a nice conversation over coffee, you know, like we become aware of something new in our life and we change. But has anyone in the house ever experienced the severe mercy of God? Where it seems like God has brought a storm into your life, but it's the thing that you look back and you're like, that was terrifying, but it saved my life. God loved me with a severe mercy. And this is because the grace and love of God is not simple tolerance that simply affirms everything we say and do. God's grace is a grace that changes us and wants to get a hold of our lives so that we come and we, we turn away from kind of these self-absorbed, petty, very small, you know, self-righteous, critical selves, our little world of anger and judgment and that we kind of live and operate in. God wants to pull us out of that and bring us into something so much better. And yet sometimes to get us there, he needs to bring a storm into our life. And this is what happened with Jonah. He brought a storm in this terrible fish, and yet God turned him around. You know, years later, God wouldn't send a storm as a great expression of his unrelenting, passionate love for humanity. Years later, God would send his own son, Jesus, And Jesus would come and he himself would spend three days and three nights in a belly of the earth, drinking to the dregs the full cup of darkness and God-forsakenness, sacrificing himself so that he might win us back to God, so that he might rescue us. God's love is not a love His love manifest in Jesus is not a love that demands human sacrifice, that demands that we kind of pull ourselves back up through our hard work and effort and more and more sacrifice till finally we can become acceptable to him. God's love is a love that reaches down to us and pursues us and that actually sacrifices himself for us. And that's very, very good news. Let's pray together. Our God, we come to you now, and many of us would confess in this room before your face that there are those pockets in our heart and life where we are much more comfortable just to live in the world of criticism and anger, simply feeling mad at people in the world around us all the time. And we have a very hard time moving out with love and with compassion and forgiveness. God, help us, we pray. God, enable us to see those people in whom you are at work all around us. Teach us to learn to respect and to treat others with enough dignity so that we would get to know them and not make simple assumptions about them. And God, show us once again 
that you have pursued us. Show us your love for us, we pray. Bring into our life storms and fish and all kinds of uncomfortable things until we're drawn out of that false self and move into the genuine way of life that you want for us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.